Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Deep, deep down. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we find out what happens when Andy gets into the exhilarating gas. <laughs> Meet Diabolic, a bank Robin Hood who baffles the cops. He robs from the rich to give to the girls. Master sports car racer. Master lover. Ask Eva. She can't get a good night's sleep unless she's covered with money. Diabolic. The absolute gold-plated end. Ask Eva. Andy, uh, we're doing the films of uh, 1968, crime films of 1968, films that represent the uh, the the tone and tenor of the time that are able to uh, sew together a tapestry, a rich tapestry uh, of of crime in this period in our glorious global history. How did we land again on Danger Diabolic? We wanted to do crime films and celebrate crime films that were having their 50th anniversary as a part of this. Um, mm-hmm. We gave the list of films that we were, um, we thought would be ones to choose from to our Patreon members who voted on them. And this was one of the ones that received the highest number of votes. And I think it's because it looks kind of crazy and it looks kind of fun. That's probably <laughs> why people picked it. Um, should, I don't, we, should we have learned a lesson? No, no, no. I don't think people were necessarily picking it for, you know, any particular reason to look at how does it fit into the context of the late 60s. But that being said, I do think that it interestingly fits in some ways. And so as we uh, kind of continue this conversation, it will be interesting to see um, what of those elements come out of that of that chat. I agree. I agree with all of that. And uh, I, I think it's I, I think it's fascinating. I had never seen the movie again. I did not know what I was getting into with the movie. And I was worried that it was going to be something. like. And I feel like maybe it was something you had told me or the way you had talked about the movie months ago. Uh, maybe you said something like, oh, Danger Diabolic. That'll be interesting. <laughs> and my initial reaction was, oh, God, this is going to be a horror show. And uh, it was not that. It was, uh, let's say, it leans much more into the Pink Panther, uh, dare I say, uh, Austin Powers jaunt. Can we start out? Did you did you like it? I really did. I had a very fun time watching the movie. It's just kind of a, this crazy story that is. Um, it does feel very much like a comic book story. It feels kind of like the Batman TV show, even though that actually, uh, I think that didn't actually start airing on TV until like after they finished production. So it's not like they were ripping it off or anything, but it still has that vibe. So clearly the energy, like this type of energy was just in the air in the late sixties because multiple people were kind of coming at their, their spy comic book, you know, storytelling with this sort of uh, mentality. And I, I think that it works in context of what they're doing. It's so interesting to hear you say that. To me, it's just uh, 
really uh, seed material that I can't help imagine, but imagine Joel Schumacher used as reference for Batman and Robin. It it was that that level of camp uh, that it was a movie that was sort of trying to take itself more seriously than it it deserved, and I found myself more annoyed by it. Uh, although I have to say, I. Uh, there were elements that I was fascinated by and, and elements of sort of that reflection that you were talking about, the anti-establishment uh, sort of venting that's going on in this movie, I thought was really interesting. And it is based on a comic uh, that I know nothing about. And I'm fascinated also by the sort of genesis of the comic and the fumetti neri Italian uh, crime genre of of comic books yeah it's it is a really interesting um story just learning more about this particular uh comic book that really had an incredibly long life and uh, you know it was it was published in a number of 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 series Uh, usually it was like a year or more long and I think that they started right. I, I actually don't know. It was two sisters who started it. It was Angela and Luciana Giussani. Um, they started it in 1962. So, uh, you know, this film was within its first decade of publication. Mm-hmm. And they were doing this comic until into the 80s. And then they passed it to uh, Patricia Martinelli and some other people's hands. And, um, and then I think, uh, it may still actually be going on. It's, it's, um, been an incredibly, incredibly long running series. In fact, I think in 2013, the 800th issue was actually published. That is just fantastic. And, and the fact that it's uh, created by these two sisters, these two women who are giving us, uh, a look in this sort of graphic novel format, uh, at, um, an adult oriented kind of crime story. I mean, it's designed, uh, around this, this sort of more adult themes and sexual tones and crime and uh you know there was in the 60s there was some backlash to uh to what diabolic had uh kind of kick-started in uh these italian books and and that of course uh caused uh the pendulum to swing both ways and on one end you get some softened kind of uh books that come out of that in the late 60s and on the other you have the underground uh you know leaning much more straight pornographic uh comic books that that came out of that and so those that i i think what what diabolic kickstarted then in the 60s it's still obviously uh thriving is fascinating and fascinating too that they were able to get a movie made uh so quickly in the 60s based on this property well so quickly it certainly still took its time to actually get there um it was uh i think tonino servi or cervi uh, a producer who worked at an italian production company called Ita- italy film he actually proposed an adaptation and i believe this was like 64 or 65 and uh he he brought on uh dino de laurentis to work on it with him they um, they started working on it. They actually had funded it. They had these the script drafted. They um, cast it. Um, they brought on British director Seth Holt and French French actor uh, Jean Sorel was playing Diabolic or Diabolic. Um, and then uh, it, it Elsa Martinelli played 
Eva, George Raft played, uh, in this case, it was, uh, the enemy's name was Richness, and they started shooting it in 1965. Raft ended up becoming sick during production, and they had to uh, replace him with Gilbert Rowland. And then they finished actually filming this whole movie, and then De Laurentiis uh, started looking at it, and um, he said, you know, this footage level, he said it was a, a level so low, both from an artistic and commercial point of view, as to make us clearly understand that to continue on that path meant heading toward disaster, which <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't really mince words. <laughs> no, and it's, it's crazy that they had gone so far along. But so what he did is he, he basically went back to the beginning. He restarted production, had a new script done. New director uh, found new production partners because the other ones were so mad at him that they kind of uh, pulled out, pulled their funding and everything. And uh, and one of them actually took the footage, the cameras, the the costumes, uh, everything. They kind of took everything, and he had to restart. and And luckily, Paramount Pictures came in with some financial backing, and he brought on Mario Bava to direct it. and um, And that's this version. But, you know, so it was a fairly lengthy and brutal road that it actually took to to finally making it to the screen. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, you watch the film here and it's it just seems like it was meant to be. Well, I th- <laughs> meant to be. Wow, <laughs> that's generous. I, I feel like, uh, you know, you can't talk about that without talking about the Barbarella connection. Um, you know, my understanding is Barbarella was actually working on using some of the technologies, the the front screen projection technologies that uh, Stanley Kubrick was using when he was making 2001. And um, but they were having issues and we were talking about the complexity of that system and how everything had to line up just right. And my understanding is that they were having troubles with that screen and it wasn't looking right. And in order to still keep moving um, while they were figuring the process out with Barbarella, a- another uh, Dino De Laurentiis film, he said, well, let's get uh, a- a Diabolic started. We'll-, we'll start working on that now. And um, and so that's kind of the thing that kind of got the gears in motion for this. In fact, there are some elements like when you're in the the club and you got all the dancers and people smoking pot yeah. and all that. There are elements in there that are set pieces from Barbarella. Um, in fact, John Philip Law, I believe he um, was going to be in or may be in Barbarella. I should actually look. He is up. in. No, he's in Barbarella. Absolutely. He plays Pygar. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and he's not the only one. There are some other cast members and certainly some crew that that crossed over. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of, you know, production efficiency and uh, I, I think it's a fascinating sort of double bill. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, so he he came on board to um, to do the role in Barbarella, but De Laurentiis thought he might be a good uh, diabolic and so had him audition. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're the guy. And that was kind of it. And they jumped into production with this while Barbarella figured out its uh, production issues. And here we are. Here we are. Uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics in the movie. Now, I characterize this as a James Bond kind of Pink Panther thing. And I played a little bit of it for my wife. And she immediately said, oh, 
Is that what Austin Powers was trying to do? <laughs> it is a remarkable comic looking film. And and I think that's where it gets a lot of praise that it is a, a deeply faithful adaptation uh, of the comic book, of the tone and tenor and the look of the comic book. And I have to say, even though there, I'm not crazy about a lot of stuff in this movie um, and that it, it just it, it wasn't to my taste, the production design absolutely was the things like that crazy shower the, that is like the self-censoring gender-specific shower I thought was a hoot. I thought that was super funny. The self-painting garage when he pulls the car in and gets the garage painted while making out with uh, the his lady friend. I thought that was super funny. The spiral bed? Are you kidding me? That was a great bed. Like you, you sleep on a curve that goes up. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it is fantastic. Everything about it was really fun and it was a great design. And I think some of that they pull from the comic books. And I think some of that is just Mario Bava at play and kind of coming up with unique ideas that, that uh, make for a fun look. And what was really smart is they did a lot of stuff um, to create this, this environment uh, with like matte paintings. And so a lot of the stuff that you see when they're in the cave, uh, his hideout is really just like matte paintings. And the set is very, you know, specific areas where they can work in. Um, what's amazing about that is when you see a shot, like when they come in and, and Eva gets out of the car and then she walks up the stairs and then you see her kind of going through like the kind of translucent tube to a different part. That was all a matte painting, and she was just going up some stairs and across a catwalk. It just happened to be uh, designed in such a way to kind of make it feel like she was really in that environment. And I think that Bava really found a strong way to to take his these elements and and put the people in them and made it feel incredibly real. And I loved that about all of the design work going on in here. It, I totally agree. It's extraordinary. And, it, you know, not just for the time. I mean, it's really fun and just kind of flamboyant design. And it works so well practically for those kinds of visual tricks, those camera tricks. Uh, I, I thought it was great. And and some of the bits of comedy. And frankly, I, I it disappointed me that we didn't get more of the kinds of camp that we got in the press conference when Diabolic shows up with Eva and they're standing in the press conference and they take their anti-exhilaration pills and <laughs> then they release the exhilarating gas. Uh, th that was such a weird and subdued uh, sequence where, it, you know, you expect them to do something truly diabolical and it turns out that it's not totally diabolical it's just a distraction and uh i i wanted more comedy like that well and and i enjoyed the comedy that was in there but for me all of that stuff was just fun uh you know spy and criminal comic book uh stuff that i yeah. had a good time with i didn't need it to be funny i just enjoyed having it like at the beginning when he he makes off with the all of the money that he has just stolen um, in right. the big heist where he kind of pulls the wool over their eyes as they as he they realize that he actually knew where the money was all along. But as they pull up onto the docks, it cuts to a shot of like some some pipes and like a crazy colored gas just like starts yes. spraying out. <laughs> and you get those fantastic process shots that, you know, it's obviously process shots, but it's just done with such a fun spirit. 
And you buy into the design of this world that it's very comic booky, and you're you're kind of stepping into it. Not to mention that a lot of the framing throughout the film really lends itself to kind of comic book framing, whether it's the way that the camera catches conversations between uh, Diabolic and Eve in the rearview mirror as they're looking at a castle. Mm -hmm. Or when you're looking at characters through bookcases and just the way the the shapes of the bookcase, um, you know, panels are framing the different characters, it feels very panelly. And to that end, it has that great comic book vibe. I I thought that the team really did a fantastic job of of keeping that consistent all the way through. The first time I really noticed that that look, the the way the camera treats the frame, uh, is when he comes back after that initial thing. He wants to put the thing in the in the safe. He's got the thing in the bag, and he needs to put it in the safe. And we get that that safe POV. Uh, it's like that what would be a camera high above, uh, super wide over him and the car, and he's like looking around to make sure she's not looking i guess but uh it's that that shot is so striking to me because it's like the ultimate hero shot of him and his lair and the car and i feel like i've seen that shot a hundred times in movies made hence yeah absolutely um but i think even to that point they were playing with it like way all the way to the beginning looking at the opening of the film when you when you get some very uh, Kubrick-esque shots that are very, um, you know, everything is very centered. Like when the the squadron of the police are pulling into the big, the buildings, and you've got that beautifully centered shot as the whole mm-hmm. squadron kind of goes up the middle with their motorbikes, and then as they're leaving, you get that fantastic overhead shot of I don't know, it's like a weird parking lot with like wave lines between where the cars park. I really couldn't yeah, figure out. Yeah, what was that all about? What it right? was, but you Who get all the cops like that, right? Exactly, <laughs> but you get all the cops leaving, and then you get. Get uh, uh, Diabolics, uh, his Jaguar, kind of pulling in with a fantastic musical sting. You get a great like crash zoom into it, and then a crash zoom out as he pulls away. That's the other thing. It's just the way that he was playing with the, the zooms, like some crash in, crash out zooms, especially when there's a cut involved. Like I think he does it a, a number of times. The one that I'm thinking of is when we're on the ship. Um, the boat with the bad guy, um, Valmont, and he sees one of his guys' boats coming, and there's like a crash zoom in on the other boat, and then there's a crash zoom uh, from the opposite direction in on Valmont's face. And it's like these match cut crash zooms. It just, it, it's like full of energy. I was amazed. His costume, uh, his costumes are, are terrific. Uh, he's wearing a, uh, is basically just a uh, you know leather or latex something. It's like a uh, gimp outfit. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like a gimp outfit. But I love the mask in particular so much, and this gets to uh, a core strength of uh, uh, of our hero uh, John Philip Law that. The mask is so form fitting that like the the rubber of the mask, it it not only does it outline his lips, right? It it has a lip outline in there and it looks like it goes in his mouth. It also goes up his nose like the the rubber appears to go up his nose. And that I, I mean, that is a, a commitment to uh, a, 
<laughs> a mask there that I thought was <laughs> yeah. really great. Uh, but his the way the that super wide eye cutout is on the and and just this is the design of the character, right? Not nothing particular film, but I think the 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 uh, uh, fidelity to the comic character design is so great partly because or in large part because law can hold his eyes so fixed in one particular gaze the way he can that is an incredible strength the way he holds his eyebrows just right he holds his eyes open just right uh from the beginning of the movie when we first meet him all the way to the very very last shot it's so great and yeah i i love the mask it's the funniest thing to see a mask that is so form-fitting that it has the lips and the nose just like you were describing i couldn't get enough of it and in particular i love the fact that he has a special version of it to match the outside of the of the castle tower so when he's climbing it at night he will be more camouflaged that was fantastic when he actually changes clothes (laughs) to wear the right outfit so funny the, all those kinds of gimmicks again that's the kind of comedy that i really appreciated that i really liked uh and and i would say the other kind of comedy the the body comedy you know when we have the uh, after their first heist they get all that money and they get back to his lair and they're on that weird spiral bed and we have that long long tracking shot that takes us right up to the bed and then arms and legs start coming out they're buried in cash and uh i i love that it's such a trope but i i really love the way that shot was was executed i you say it's a trope but i don't feel like i've ever seen people like buried in money where you don't even know there are people there there's so much money and then they come out of it it's like wow that's a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> okay that's really true it, i mean it's I've never seen, been done you know, like this robert redford and demi Moore <laughs> yeah. rolling or i guess it was just Demi Moore rolling around in a uh, in a bed covered in money but yes. that i felt it was a little different it was different but it was just the the bed uh money on a bed thing that's yes, a thing yes, yes, right yes. that's definitely a thing and uh this i i think it comes from nobody's ever been able to do it quite like this like the oh, excess correct. of this movie and i think that that really sums it up for me this movie is all about excess and it's 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 fun because we are i mean this is a villain let's be honest uh diabolic is a villain he is a thief at the beginning he steals a bunch of money and then he steals some emeralds um and then he uh steals a huge thing of gold i mean those are the three things that that we see him steal over the course of the film not to mention kill a ton of people and blow a bunch of buildings up i mean he's a terrorist he really is And there's that anti-establishment element of him that feels very fight club where he's, you know, I'm going to take all of the the buildings down. And as he's as he's blowing these buildings up, you see, it's like the and I can't remember what they are, but it's like the tax service and the different departments of government. And he's he's kind of resetting everything so they can't uh, control the money. And it's because he wants this gold so much, really. But. I think that there is very much an anti-establishment element of him or of kind of culture in this film. I mean, people were uh, there was that element of people being tired of the way the governments were running things. And I think that it's really shining through here. Well, it's a it's a Robin Hood story and but it's a Robin Hood story with a particularly 60s bent. And, you know, we get that in other characters. I've already mentioned the, the my sort of 
parallel to this uh, to James Bond, right, where we're we're celebrating another villain. I mean, he's a state sponsored assassin. He is a state sponsored murderer and a misogynist, and we make him a hero. Um, we have uh, who was the other one I I mentioned a second ago? Uh, oh, uh, Pink Panther. He is a uh, he's a thief. He's another thief. Uh, he doesn't kill a lot of people, but he's another thief, right? Th- this is a this is a thing we're t- doing that sort of Robin Hood transformation, turning the um, uh, turning the who would otherwise be a bad guy, a cultural response to, um, you know, is essentially authoritarianism. And we're making him the people's hero. And it it's fun to go along for the ride. You can start to see yourself a little bit in that character. Yeah, I feel like the James Bond and Pink Panther comparisons are a little off only because they I mean, I, I feel like James Bond, there's an element to him that I feel is a little more akin to like, the uh you know our character in coogan's bluff or something where it's the cop who is gonna disrespect authority a little bit but still is ostensibly a good guy he's doing he's fighting for what's right um and pink panther it's like well it's it's really inspector clouseau who are following in those films right yeah i no, i i get your point there but i also and you know how the 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 shine has fallen off of james bond for me over the last couple of years and so i tend to group him more in the uh uh let's let's turn the bad guy into a good guy uh trope that's easier for me to jump into that model yeah i just i i, I mean maybe the in in today's eyes yes i guess you can look at it that way i I just don't think it's completely fair to the idea of what the character is going for you know it's you know he's secret service it's not like he's a bad guy i mean diabolic is purely a criminal and a terrorist yeah Yeah. well and that's why the robin hood that's why it starts with the robin hood thing i mean that's what that's 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 this that's the the same thing we're following a guy who will do who he has a he has good intentions uh, it, where it where it fails here is that Diabolic doesn't have the good intentions. He's not, he's keeping the money. He's he's straight up keeping the money. He's flat out a criminal. Like I, there's, I, I don't even think there's a comparison there because he's just wanting money. And really, it's for his girlfriend. I mean, yes, he loves her, and I think that's great. In fact, to that end, I think he succeeds better than James Bond because he has one girl. And that's it. And he does everything for that one girl. They're clearly a couple and they're clearly, um, you know, devoted to each other. And I actually really liked seeing that over the course of this film. It's not like he was James Bond willing to sleep with anyone just to get the job done. Right, right. Um, so, it, you know, it's it's an interesting guy. And I, I don't know, by the time I got to the end of it, I was really feeling so much more connected to him in that fight club sort of way, because it really is about, you know, it's not completely the same mentality, but, you know, just taking down the system. I really enjoy that angle of this character. I just found it such an interesting uh, ride with this wacky character that I... <laughs> I, I really was like, this is just such a strange character, but I really enjoyed him over the course of the film. But I kept asking myself, why do I, why am I compelled to like this guy? Because he's really kind of a bad guy, but he's awfully fun and he's got great eyes and a great laugh. Yeah, that's true. And he does, he loves to show it off and, uh, uh, and, and it's charisma. It's, it's so much can sway us when it comes to just straight up charisma. Yeah. Uh, I, I watched this, I, I have to say, I watched this in possibly the worst circumstance. Uh, I, I watched a YouTube rip of it. 
Oh, no. So you can see it on YouTube, everybody. You can go watch the whole thing. And in fact, once you get to the end, it actually starts over. So you can watch the beginning of it again for like 20 minutes if you want. That's why YouTube is awesome. Uh, but I, so I have to say, I got no special features. I got no crystal clear image. Uh, and I watched it on a, uh, it was not ideal. Um, what, what did you, what, what's the deal with the language? We, we talked about this back when we did the Man With No Name trilogy. Um, this is kind of how Italians would make films, where they would film um, with not no synced sound, and then they would have everybody come in and dub them later. And that worked really well to create films like this, or even those ones when we talked about those, because you, you were allowed to cast like very international casts and have... Uh, have a wide range of people that you could bring on board just because they fit the look of the part. And then you could choose to dub them with their own voice or, hey, bring in somebody else to to do the voice for them. Uh, in this particular case, John Philip Law, um, he was American and he uh, did his own voice. You had Marissa Mel, who was Austrian, and she did her own voice. Michelle Piccoli, he was uh, he was the uh, the in- investigator who is pursuing him through the whole film, and he's French, and I don't know if he I think he did his own voice, and then you had Adolfo Celli, who uh, is Italian, and he was uh, he was uh, Valmont, and I believe somebody else came in uh, to do his voice. In fact, he's actually in in Thunderball, which I think is is kind of funny, which he's was awesome. Yeah. Yes. That so was it's, great. It was it was a it was a double take moment to see him uh, come out of that <laughs> on the deck of that boat. Yeah, that's a that's a crazy little scene too. So it's I mean it's it's that you know the glorious uh, you know Italian sixties when they were making these films this way, and and I don't even know when they stopped uh, making them this way, where they were just doing it with without the synced sound. Well, it was uh, so that at least gives me confidence that uh, you and I saw the same thing except for yours didn't start over at the end. Well, you know what's funny is on the commentary, they were actually talking about how there were several different versions of the uh, of this of the synced sound. And the one I watched is the main one. And um, the the what I, I guess the easiest way to tell is when you're listening to the women talking like uh, Valmont's women, they sound the the other versions uh of the women sound very ditzy. They sound uh, just silly. And in the version I watched, they just sound very British. Yeah. I, I think uh, I, I want to say mine were British, but I need to, I'm, I'm going to need to check. It didn't stick yeah. with me. I'm, I'm guessing that it sounded like that other version, like, you know, the way that he was talking is like, he's, he wasn't even sure if Paramount even had a copy of that other edition anymore. So I'm guessing you probably uh, watched the same version that I have. Yeah. They do make good on, you know, here is where we can agree on the James Bond comparison. There are gadgets and bullets in this movie. Oh, yes, there are. There are so yes, many sir. gadgets and bullets. And the first one is I, I love the mirror in the road trick where they have to stop the car and get out and they put the giant <laughs> sheet across the highway. <laughs> to trick the I, cops into crashing. Yeah. Oh, no, it's the old mirror sheet on the road trick, eh? <laughs> I just I found myself getting a great chuckle out of that. Uh, and it, and again, to your point, it's, it's downright diabolical. They 
they force the police off into a crashing fireball of doom uh, off the edge of the cliff. That was uh, it was not a good way to go if you're if you're going to go. He steals the emerald necklace. He has to get the emeralds out and processed, and he uses a very dark way to smuggle the emeralds out. He makes them into bullets and then gets them shot into somebody. That was brilliant. The way that he he puts the bullets in the gun and then he kills Valmont with it. And then <laughs> then Valmont is is incinerated and uh, he takes them from the ashes. It's <laughs> <laughs> so gruesome. I Which thought is, that horrifying. was horrifying. But it's yeah. interesting because that's actually something that the Bond franchise kind of pilfered from this when they did Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds Are Forever. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was that, that was that was great. And it gets to something about Mario Bava that I don't know much about because I'm not a student of Bava's work. But, um, you know, initially watching this, I thought this this can't be representative of his stuff and looking into, you know, what he represents in it, Italian film history and in genre film history as sort of one of the uh, kind of forefathers of slasher horror of of horror thrillers um you know how does this film really fit uh, into his catalog well that's one of those ways where you have this you you have this sequence that you have to um you have to process and he does it in a a really kind of grim um fashion and and you know the way he uses the camera his expertise as a cinematographer you can see so many of those uh of, of the instincts that go into uh, horror cinematography and horror direction, you can see at work in this film once you kind of look through some of the camp. Bava, I have I have not seen uh, many of Bava's films. I think I've only seen Blood and Black Lace. Um, I enjoy the style. I enjoy what he's doing. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, it's, it's interesting because I, I feel like camp is uh there's an element that when you say camp it's like you're already kind of there's some cheeky making fun of it a little bit and i don't know if i completely buy that he's really making fun of it or just or being taking it seriously and just doing it in a fun way and i i I struggle with that but I, i really enjoy what mario bava does and i enjoy the way that he he clearly understands i mean he started as a cinematographer he clearly understands the language of the camera and how to use it but also i love how he really seems to understand how to set up shots how to kind of play with effects i mean he's great in the world of effects i i loved learning that when when diabolic and eva are in the their little jag and they the the little um uh, top of the hill lifts up and it's actually the entrance to their underground uh, hideout and they drive down into it that was actually just them driving down a little road and they built this little model of this thing to just lay right in front of the camera and it just lifts up and goes down but it looks because you're going through the eye of the lens and it compresses everything it actually looks like it's something that they're going under it's it's pretty genius and i think He's very good at that sort of work. Clearly. And it makes me want to watch uh, some of his other films. You know, I I, I would love to see uh, I Vampiri, The Devil's Commandment, uh, which is apparently now known as the first Italian horror film. Have you seen it? I have not. Like I said, Blood and Black Lace is the only one of his films that I've seen. Yeah, that's another one. Uh, Bay of Blood is is one of the earliest slasher films. And I just man, this guy has not been on my radar. And and I feel like this is um, this this would be an interesting thing to explore. And I, I think it would probably make me um, reevaluate watching this movie. Um, 
and and you know maybe connect with it a little better. I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I think it's it clearly um, he has uh, he has an eye for you know cinema, the eye for camera, and I I, I like that stuff. Um, even though I, I'm not connecting all that well with the material itself. John Philip Law, obviously, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about him and he had kind of a, a, uh, a an interesting career. I think this was th- this type of film is it's where he picked up quite a bit of the the work that he ended up getting. I think this was um, such a great um uh, dip into kind of genre films that gave him a great opportunity to do a lot of other things, which is great. Uh, Marissa Mel, though, I think we should talk about her as Eva. I think that I, I I don't know. I just really kind of fell in love with her. There's something just great about her and and how she just seems she's totally in on all of this with him and is like his accomplice and everything. Um, but she's also kind of an instigator. And is, I, I don't know. I found that really funny when they're watching TV and they see those emeralds and she's just looking at him like, I want those. <laughs> yeah, like, and he's yeah. like, okay, I'll, I'll go steal them for you. Like what a little devious woman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful part of the duo that's sort of Bonnie and Clydeness of it, the cloak and dagger where they, they each have their own sort of um, compulsions and they, they serve one another so well. Uh, you know, it's like they, this is the shark and the remora kind of relationship that's they, they can't exist without one another. Uh, and, and I like her role in that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that she's fantastic. Michelle Piccoli as the inspector, Inspector Jinko. I uh, he's got a great serious sensibility about him as the detective um, dead on with his hunt for uh, for a diabolic. I enjoyed him quite a bit. I don't know if I've seen that many other films that uh, Michelle Piccoli has been in. Um, Contempt, I've seen. I know he was in some films with Luis Buñuel, but um, I, I feel like he's one of those French actors who I recognize, but I have seen very few films of his. Oh, he was in Holy Motors. I, I saw him in that. That's so funny. Interesting. I'm doing the same. I'm doing the same sort of scan because I feel like I know him, but it would have been from the 80s. Like, what would I have been watching in the 80s and 90s of Michelle Piccoli? I mean, his credit list, he has 233 films on yeah. his credit list. So you look at that and you're like, oh, well, I'm sure I've seen him in something. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, he's just in so much stuff. And yeah, as I scroll through his his list unfortunately none of it sounds that familiar but uh it doesn't mean anything I, i'm sure that i've seen him in other projects as well so seeing seeing adolfo celli in this walk out on the edge of the boat is is a little bit akin to seeing stephen burkhoff in under the cherry moon like <laughs> it's a little bit of context shock because i know him so well from other things the, the other difference is i like under the cherry moon Ugh. oh wow oh <laughs> We we have to talk a little bit about the ministers of the interior. So the first minister of the interior, Terry Thomas, is uh, very funny. And our first, when we meet them in their first little uh, conversation in his office, I it, it's it is I find it really uh, a delightful exchange between the three of them. Well, and Terry Thomas, I mean, he is a hugely popular British uh, comedian. Yeah. I mean, he you know, that gap in his teeth is 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 just he's almost famous for that he was he you know he was in disney's robin hood as sir hiss the snake i think because of that gap between his teeth right i mean he was in it's a mad 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 world 
Um, I, I think it largely the, the, you know, the things that he's most well known for. Are- wow. He was in a movie called, have you seen this one? Those Magnificent Men and Their Flying Machines or How I Flew from London to Paris in 25 Hours, 11 Minutes. Yeah, that's one of those films that I've heard about. Uh, I've never gotten around to seeing it, but I totally have heard about that one. Um, it's just because it's one of those titles that you don't forget, you know, when you hear it. And it has 20 words in it. So if you're playing the movie title length game, that's <laughs> one to keep in your back pocket. That's the winning one, right? Yeah, he's he's an actor who's been in a lot of projects. I can't remember that there's a British series that he was really well known for. Uh, and I can't remember what it is. Um, so I'm going to pass on trying to remember what that is, but, um, yeah, he's one of those guys who is just a very familiar face and inevitably there's something that you will have seen him in because he's just, you know, he's got a face that is just really memorable and, uh, it's just, uh, it's fantastic seeing him popping up in here. And I love him breaking out into guffaws from the exhilarating gas. <laughs> Uh, Antonio Rinaldi is b- behind the camera, but I get the feeling that uh, this was as much a Mario Bava shot thing as Antonio Rinaldi. That's my impression from hearing them talk about it is and, and hearing uh, John Philip Law actually talking about it. He It sounds like it was largely Bava behind the camera doing the camera work. And Antonio was on as kind of uh, the assistant or the um you know the camera operator but you know it's one of those things how things end up getting credited who knows but uh you know i think rinaldi whoever did the work uh, bava or rinaldi or both it, it ended up being a very lively film yes and again so much of that to the credit of the production design team uh we haven't mentioned them by name yet but we've got some uh, we've got at least one uh, name that's behind a film that we love. Yeah, we've got uh, Flavio Mogherini or Mogherini as the production designer or art director, and then Carlo Rimbaldi, um, uncredited. And the two of them really kind of put all this together. And of course, Carlo, Carlo Rimbaldi um, has worked on projects like E.T. So it's it's really a strong production design team who uh, came together to create a really fantastic looking film. Uh, the music, I've, I've been back pocketing this conversation on the music, Andy, because I found the score <laughs> to be super tight. It has some great themes and it is so overplayed in this movie that I think that's largely it, it certainly contributes to, uh, you know, my overall feeling watching the film. And the score was done by none other than Ennio Morricone. Andy. Oh, yes. Deep, deep down. I can't listen to it again and and you look at the <laughs> at the score uh at the track list of the score it's it's diabolic parts one through eight those are all different tracks and deep down parts one through nine along with additional parts deep down italian version and deep down english version and a couple of other tracks, La Regola di Gioco and La Regola di Gioco thrilling version. And that's it. They a real economy of specific individual words in the track list. And I think that's why I found it so annoying. It was the same theme over and over eight and nine times. Uh, and it's it's tough. Well, and you love it. it. You love and it so I, much. I do. I do love it. <laughs> 
I mean, it's it's a great uh, it's it's funny because I had the score and actually I have this actually never was officially released um, as an album. So any albums that we find are just kind of later albums that people have kind of pieced together or I, I don't know if there's an official album yet. The one I have um, actually is a 34 track album and a lot of um, dialogue snippets are in there, and uh, the the one you know, I'm looking at the one that's that was released on Apple Music, and it is Ennio Morricone, the Italian Solsti uh, Orchestra del Cinema Italiano, Danger Diabolic, complete score. But it would have been a very recent release, 2014. It, like, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, none of them, none of them came out at the time, other than the Deep Deep Down um, single, which was very popular. Pete, very popular. <laughs> I believe that we've grown as humanity in, in so many ways. Oh, I I really I wasn't a huge fan of it either, but I have found that it sticks in my mind. And That's the problem, Andy. <laughs> I know, I know, but it's fun. And and when it popped up in this movie, I I because I had heard it before, I was like, oh, I'm totally at home now in this movie. It all makes sense what I'm seeing because it fits so perfectly with this crazy music. <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, I do find myself kind of enjoying it now. And I, I didn't think that would happen after having heard the music, um, a number of times beforehand. Just didn't, I, I have to go listen to the mission to cleanse my palate. What you do see here is that, um, very clear evidence that Ennio Morricone always has really liked using voices in his music. Yes. There are not just the singing, but even just you know when there's just the other score there's there's a lot of women's voices like ah like that sort of uh stuff happening in the score it's something that he continues to use throughout his career as a way to just i mean it's another instrument really and i think he does it very effectively even if you're not a fan of the score i think it ends up being an effective score because of that this film was used in the final episode of the 10th season of mystery science theater 3000. Were you ever a fan of that show? You know, I was in the early seasons. I didn't see this episode. Did you? I actually have never seen a full episode of the show because <gasps> oh. I get so irritated with people like talking in movies. Oh, and I don't right. want to hear people like I don't like hearing people just riff on movies. Um, you know, I'm just like, I, I don't know. I, I don't get into it that much. So. No, that's a legit complaint. That is a legit complaint. I have, I have not had uh, as much trouble with it watching the show, uh, because they're usually movies that are just straight up bad. And I think that's why I knew that, uh, MST3K had done this movie. I had not seen that episode uh, so I went into it already predisposed to thinking this is this movie is is fodder for them to lampoon. And uh, I, and I, I'm sure that that colored my impression of the film. Yeah, I, I think it may have. I think it may have. Uh, how uh, there, I assume there were no uh, remakes, no sequels. Uh, is this a, did this start well, a franchise? You you say that, but uh, you have to remember that it really kind of started from this comic series that continued long afterwards. So this was the only film version that was made of it, but there was a, uh, a a number of other products that kind of created were created from this. We had 
Um, I mean, geez, the, the comic series sold more than 150 million copies. There was a radio show. There was an animated TV series. There was a whole bunch of video games, a bunch of novels, not to mention all the parodies. So it was the, the film itself didn't necessarily spin off anything, but it definitely uh, is a story that did. And actually, I will say, uh, you know, as we were talking about influences, and I was thinking about this with some of these crash zooms, is that Edgar Wright actually um, brought this uh, film specifically up as an influence on him when he was making Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Yeah. In the sense, nothing is really realistic. It was all just, you know, crazy. Yeah, you can feel it. You can feel it. And I, I know what you're thinking, Pete. If you love Scott Pilgrim as much as you do, surely you could find more room in your heart for Diabolic. I am thinking that. I know I you're thinking, thinking that. that. I feel like this is a film that you'll you'll give yourself a chance to watch down the road, and you'll I'm go, totally up to you know, that. yeah. This is, this is this is kind of a fun movie. I'm I'm not. I have to say, I'm not finished with this movie. I I feel like I'm not finished with it. I I didn't connect with it, but it it's one that I'm I am absolutely open to watching this again. Absolutely. There is enough in here that I did connect with that uh, I'm I'm and it has intrigued me to so many other players that I want to learn more about. So that's a good thing. No, it, it definitely is. And I think Mario Bava and just Italian films in general, it's an area that's interesting and worth exploring and, and maybe something that we want to uh, to try out on a series down the road. Yeah. Who knows? I, I would I would love to do that. Now, how to do at the box office. Well, you know, as we as I mentioned, it was going through a, quite a bit of craziness uh, with the previous version uh, going beforehand. But by the time De Laurentiis sorted out that production and all of his other production woes and restarted production on the movie... He'd worked out the deal with Paramount, as I said, and they they actually brought in a budget less than where less than half where they originally started, coming in at 200 million lira, um, which is about 320,000 US dollars and 2.2 million in today's dollars. Now, I did read somewhere that Mario Bava was not used to budgets this big with his films, and he actually only spent like a small portion of that, like 140,000 or 440,000, something like that. But I, I, I couldn't quite find anything fully substantiating any of that. So I just went with these numbers. Um, the film's highly anticipated release in Italy happened January 24th, 1968, before opening in Paris in April and the US in December. Here in the States, it actually underperformed, which isn't surprising. It was a film about a terrorist um, and suffered bad reviews. But the movie still made its money back, earning 265 million lira or 424,000 US dollars, which is about 2.9 million in today's dollars. That gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $6,800, barely squeaking by into the black. But over time, it has gained popularity and credibility and now is considered a classic in many circles. So it was a little bit hit or miss with this this series, but overall, I have to say, our, our exploration of 1968 50th anniversary crime films from around the world uh, was a success. What'd you get out of it? I really found it to be um, a, largely a success. Yeah, 75%, I, I think, I really enjoyed. 
<laughs> this, this, uh, these crime films. And what I think I found most interesting is that the three crime films that I ended up really connecting with, I found so, um, like they all still work really well, um, today. And that's what I really liked targets, especially, I mean, that one just, that one fits so nicely with just the, uh, kind of well nicely and sadly it fits so well in today's um through today's eyes um but the detective also had such interesting things to say that still seem really relevant and i enjoyed that and this one uh danger diabolic is just it's a fun ride and it still has some interesting elements that stand up very well today coogan's bluff is the only one i just i i really didn't feel it held up at all and it really uh kind of frustrated me because i was hoping with the pairing of Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood that I would have found a little more uh, with it. Yeah, I totally agree. For me, this entire series, I was deeply moved by Targets and and what it demonstrated about the the time and about crime and about gun control and the detective, uh, it, it, what it was able to deliver in terms of seeing you know Sinatra in this role in this adaptation of this particular character, the connection to Die Hard and and um, uh, you know this character that we love so much um i i was really impressed and um i feel like i i um, learned a lot uh, about just the artist's interpretation of um, some really difficult topics and i was impressed by how bold they were in taking on these topics uh at the time so i i thought it was terrific i'm less than 75 percent but i'm i'm Certainly, you know, like I said, I'm I haven't given up on Diabolic. I didn't connect with it, but I I have a feeling, you know, next time you're in town, we should uh, sit down and watch it together, and you can teach me everything I miss. <laughs> uh, for now, what do you think? Is it time for us to rank it? We should. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com/slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show, uh, and uh, you can swipe over in your show notes in your podcast player there and tap the word flick chart. It'll take you right to this movie where you can add it to your collection and see how it stands up to ours. First up, we have Danger Diabolic and the girl with the dragon tattoo, Numi. Well, Numi. I'm going to go with Numi. Danger Diabolic or Atlantic City? Yeah, I'm, I'm Atlantic City. I uh, I certainly would put Diabolic on first, so I'm going to go with that one. Okay. Uh, then I think we should probably uh, mat it. Let's go to the mats. One, one two, two, three. three paper. Rock. All Look right. at that. This might be the next 2001. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Danger Diabolic or The Emigrants. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to say Danger Diabolic. I, it's funny, I'm actually tempted to say the emigrants on this one. <laughs> I, I, I found that to be quite an emotionally satisfying journey. But I think if I'm picking what I would watch first, it's going to be Diabolic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I think you're making the right choice. Danger Diabolic or post-mortem. Danger I Diabolic post for me. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, definitely Diabolic. Yes. Diabolic, please. Oh, wow. I was I was surprised. I yeah, was no, like, I was surprised you, too. I you? It, you you'd think I was uh, yeah. Danger Diabolic or now Voyager. Definitely now Voyager for me. Now Voyager, yes. Danger Diabolic or Detour. Oh, Detour, please. Uh Detour. Danger Diabolic or Metropolis. 
Metropolis. Yeah, Metropolis. Danger Diabolic or From Hell. From Hell. I think I'll go From Hell. Danger Diabolic or Star Trek Insurrection. Lock and load. <laughs> 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 oh dear oh no i think i'm, I'm totally danger diabolic i think i'm gonna one. go with danger diabolic in this case is that weird that's weird even though insurrection has some of my favorite star trek aliens yeah i i find that highly dubious it, i i've been thinking about it for a year now and i mean we're gonna need to revisit that why you mean L- list of andy's i feel like i need to to disabuse you of your love of those particular I aliens. love them and I know I you do. what you say I- <laughs> it's a fantastic race I loved it all right well that lands danger diabolic at 301 on our chart 301 out of 372 it's not super high but it's not at the bottom um it's uh you know it's a decent it's a decent spot I think that puts it at about a uh 19 percent on our uh on our chart so it's it's it seems way low what did it do for your star rating, though? Well, or wait, your personal letterbox. My personal, I think something, uh, you know, it's my personal letterbox. It ended up as uh, at, at a 2%, uh, 1,017 out of 1,040. And honestly, Andy, I mean, come on. You would have done the same thing. It came up against uh, volunteers. Okay. I ask you, oh, speaking yeah. of rock and a hard place, volunteers, and then the terminal. Yeah, well, but, the, but Volunteers is probably much higher on my chart than it is on yours. <laughs> it's that, true, but Perhaps I'm saying- embarrassingly so, but it is one a on guilty one, pleasure. Those movies, like it's, it, I even went with Volunteers. And so uh, it, it had, uh, it struggled a little bit, but, uh, you know, I feel like I learned some things uh, out of the conversation and that was good. I should, according to the algorithm, rate this as a straight up nothing. Uh, and it's deceiving because- the little stars on Flickchart, you know, where it tells you how many stars you should rate it, they're all white. So it looks like I should rate this as five stars, but really it's just not filled in. I I am actually going to give this uh, two stars. Am I going to give it a like, Andy? That's where I'm really torn. <laughs> I assume that you are a like on this, but I, I'm having a hard time predicting where you're going to end up with stars. I, uh, on my flick chart, it landed at 2241 out of 4042, which is about a 45%, mm-hmm. um, it, I, which feels slightly low for me, but you know, there's just a lot of other good films that it was coming up against and it was a pretty hard film to rank. Um, I ended up giving it three stars and a like, that's where I landed with this, but I feel like this is one of those movies that I could potentially put on and find myself growing more and more attached to because i just had so much fun with it so we'll see we'll see where it goes from here oh you make it sound like some sort of a virus (laughs) not i don't know that that's healthy you're the way you're talking about it i don't know that it's healthy but i uh i do think i will i'll give it uh, how about this i'll give it a one and a half stars and a like yeah but i will give it a like so, so our, our conversation just over the last two minutes, your 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 opinion yeah. of it diminished. I feel like I need to balance what I perceive as an unhealthy potential relationship for you in this movie. <laughs> I'm doing it for you, man. <laughs> I prefer your two stars and no likes. To, but hey, whatever. One and a half and a like. <laughs> oh, so that was about two and a, two and a quarter. Yeah. Uh, 
That's yeah, okay. Stars. That's okay. Which is is uh, it'll balance out to two and a half with a like on our uh, on our chart. So yeah, this there is, it will sit. That's that's where it belongs. But now now that we're done with the 1968 and the crime thing, we're gonna talk about something uh, a little bit different. We're certainly not done with the 1968 element, I and mean, we're still sticking with the 50th anniversaries of films from 1968. And oh yeah, we're in all this in case, on that. Yeah. Oh yeah, this is that's running through the end of the year, into the early part of next year, actually. Um, but right now, um, because October is here and Halloween is just around the corner, we are kicking off what should be a fun trilogy of some great uh, zombie films. Uh, we're going to be looking at Romero's uh, Dead trilogy, we're starting with Night of the Living Dead from 1968, celebrating its 50th anniversary, and then we'll be looking at Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. I worry that my impression of these movies is absolutely going to impact uh, others' opinions of me, because I, uh, I feel like I could make all of the same arguments about the next couple of movies we're going to watch that I just made about Danger Diabolic, defending why I don't like Danger Diabolic in many ways. But my goodness, you know, I have a thing for zombies, <laughs> like oh, yes. a real unnatural thing for zombies. So I'm very much looking forward to this series. Yeah, it's funny. I was just looking at the Nib uh, magazine, Pete. Yeah. And they have a statistic in there, which is kind of funny. It's a, it's a people who are alive versus people who are dead. <laughs> <laughs> there are 7 billion people alive today. And the Population Reference Bureau estimates that about 107 billion people have ever lived. That means there are 15 dead people for every one person currently living. Oh my God. I love and so. hate that statistic so much. <laughs> oh, wow. That's awful. We're going to sleep on that statistic, Andy. Yes, we are. There are yes, 15 are. dead people gunning for you right now. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Now, some of those are awfully decomposed. In fact, they're probably dust, but that's okay. It still is a great statistic to think about. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel, where you can get access to our exclusive members only weekend show, the Saturday matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head to head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. You can learn more about us and check out detailed show notes at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Next Reel. And if you want to get into the conversation yourself, join our Discord channel for a whole lot of movie chat with movie lovers from around the world. You can find the link to join in the show notes or on the website. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram. Ben Lott runs all things Twitter. And of course, thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always do it.
In this case, Amazon uh, didn't quite as much as I would have expected. There are, again, no one-star reviews of this movie. I wonder if that's because it's relatively hard to find. (laughs) (laughs) Also, we're including the YouTube link in the show notes, everybody. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I've got a two star review here from, uh, Kevin who says, wow, this is one of those movies that's so bad. It's good. It's worth watching with a group of friends just to make fun of it. Then of course you have to dig a little further because if you go into the comments, you get one of, I, I can't believe I've never heard this. It feels like this is a comeback that pr- I probably should have come across in my work over the years. Uh, a, a co- commenter named some guy says hardly some people just don't understand art or true style i'm sure all of your taste is in your mouth here, here <laughs> again i'm sure all of your taste have you ever heard that i'm sure your taste is in your mouth which of course it is of course oh your God. taste is in your mouth but it's that it's all of your taste that's what makes it a dig and then ASW wow. Limited responds to some guy and says, well said, some guy, which is also funny <laughs> in its own way. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, that's just clever. It's the, the joy of, of commenters commenting on each other. I, I do appreciate that in some cases more than the films we watch. But maybe all of my taste is in my mouth. Do you see what I did there? I brought it back around to me and it works self-referentially, too. This is amazing. <laughs> and it's never going to end. <laughs> what, do you, what do you got? I was going to do a a uh, a three star, but I, I think I'm going to go with a five star. Actually, I'm going to do a five star now. Wow. OK, um, this is a five star. Which means you really like it, right? Five stars out of five? Generally, yes. That's what that Generally. indicates. This is by Bruce Reynolds, who says, he's no James Bond. Interesting movie. That doesn't sound really very <laughs> I don't know if Bruce knows how the star system works. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound great. No, it huh. doesn't. Yeah, maybe he's trying to balance out for some of those people who who give it two stars and like, I loved it. Or maybe, Andy, maybe all of his taste is in his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) It keeps on giving. (laughs) It keeps on giving. Oh, dear. Uh, Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, 
Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>